Welcome to Make No Bones. I'm Emily Barton Altman. This episode, we're doing something a little different. Last summer, I talked to the writer Kathleen Rooney about her practice of walking around the city, or Flannery. Kathleen Rooney is a founding editor of Rose Metal Press and a founding member of Poems While You Wait. She's the co-editor with Eric Plattner of Renee Magritte Selected Writings from the University of Minnesota Press. Her second novel, Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk, has just been released by St. Martin's Press. She teaches at DePaul University and lives in Chicago with her husband, the writer Martin Sayi. Kathleen's new novel emerges from her practice of flannery. So instead of having Kathleen read you an excerpt, we're going to play you a portion of a walk she and I went on to give you a look into how Flannery influences her life and work. Flannery, just I guess, you know, the definition that I like to go with is sort of aimless walking through an urban environment, just in case people wonder what that is. Um, and I think other sort of ways to understand it, just because I like specialized terminology and vocabulary, are... Um, derive, which is another French word, so like the drift, this idea of drifting, and then also psychogeography, which is sort of what it sounds like, just understanding and noticing the sort of psychological reactions that you have as you pass through different landscapes. And so I've always, I think, even before I had access to those vocabulary words, I've always been a drifter in the sense that I've always loved walking. Even as a little kid, I never was someone who dreamt of cars. I was not the high schooler who could not wait to get her license. I dreaded it. I sucked at driver's ed. I resented our car culture, um, even as a little kid. And so I think once I had the option after growing up in the suburbs to live in a city, I did that. And so I moved to Washington, D.C. for undergrad. And once I was there, I just picked up the habit. And again, this was like before, it was like Flannery avant Lillette in my life. Um, and I just loved drifting. And DC is so great because it's a grid. So it was sort of good for the kind of like baby flaneur because you could get lost but never over lost. Um, and then at Oxford, I, I spent a year, my junior year abroad at Oxford University at Pembroke College, and they actually had a walking society, which sounds so like quaint and British, and it was. It was like every bit as charming as that sort of sounds like. And so there we kind of did more formalized things where they'd like pile us in a van early on a weekend morning and drive us out to some remote point and we'd just walk all day. And that was less like being a flaneur or a drift and more, you know, it was bucolic and pastoral and like opening sheep gates and stuff like that. So I think that's where it all began. And then you know, as I got into grad school, I learned about like Walter Benjamin and people like that and was like, oh, there's a whole theory behind this hobby that I just already love. I, I have always sort of identified a little more as flaneur than drifter because there's that implication of see and be seen. Sort of it's that whole like in the crowd but not of it sort of thing that I really like. And so, but I'm also aware of myself in a cool way of being part of other people's panorama. Like one of my, I'd be remiss if I didn't name my friend Eric Plattner, who's a colleague at DePaul, and he's my like primo number one Chicago walking buddy. And he's much more of a drifter. Like he doesn't care if he sees other people, he tries to sort of erase other people. He doesn't want to be seen, but I'm always conscious. Like if we stop and sit on a bridge, 
you know, or something like that. And a boat goes by and they wave at us. I'm like, oh, we're like a tiny 10 second picturesque sliver of those people's day. They may or may not remember. We waved at those people who were like drifting over the bridge or whatever. I teach a class at DePaul uh, called Writer as Urban Walker. And so there I sort of offer Baudelaire's definition of the flaneur as the botanist of the sidewalk. And so I guess in my own words, like something I'm particularly interested in is creating the vocabulary of the flaneuse. Because flaneur, of course, like French, is one of these gendered romance languages. And so flaneur is masculine. And what's interesting is there is a word in French, flaneuse, but that means prostitute, right? It means streetwalker. So the assumption historically has been that flannery is a male thing because men have always traditionally had sort of the independence and the financial or other wherewithal to just do what they want with their time. And then also, of course, like the implication that's still with us of, you know, the streets not being safe for women. And so I guess in my own words, I would like to just create that space for like taking back, you know, in kind of like a riot girl reclamation way, flanus and letting it mean a female drifter um, who has that much right and that much access to the street. And something we talk about in my class and that I talk about with other female walkers is um, sort of that, that sensation of, and it's a double-edged sword because when people warn you about the safety of the streets, you know there's a certain truth to that. And women are much more susceptible to that kind of attack. But I do think like so many fears, it gets overblown. So like every time you leave a party, people, you know, if they're like, oh my God, are you walking? We'll call you an Uber, be careful. And you appreciate the place of concern that that comes from, but you can also sort of come to resent it in a way and, and want that not to be the case. So I think, I guess in my own words, I would like to expand Flanus to not mean prostitute, but to mean with no offense to sex workers, but to mean just, you know, women having equal access to the street, um, even if they choose to use it with no quote-unquote purpose. I mean, I walk almost everywhere all the time. Um, so just in general, like, I don't drive. I have not driven a car. I can. I have a driver's license. I keep it current, because you never know. Um, but I have not driven a car since uh, 2010, and so there's that. So I just walk everywhere. And I think that's it. I just I feel safer on my feet and more in control. Um, but in terms of taking like a real sort of hardcore cognizant, you know, bit of flannery or a drift, roughly every Friday, um, Eric and I have sort of this like standing flannery plan. It's casual. We don't, you know, because if you get to planny about your flannery, it ceases to do what it's supposed to do. You know, we'll either set out from school or here, or we'll take the train or the bus somewhere, and then just see how far we can get. And, you know, so we just kind of, um, I think, really revel in that anti-productivity or that anti-capitalist, you know, we're not, like, maximizing our time, we're not making output, we're not trying to make money, we're just you know, sort of like using the city wrong, but using it right for us. So it's cool. I have this novel coming out in January of 2017, and it's called Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk. 
And so it is like actually for real about a woman named Lillian Boxfish who takes a walk. Like it's not just a clever title. And that definitely stemmed from sort of a combination of interests. You know, back in 2007, this archivist friend of mine, Angela McClendon, who's one of my, my best friends now, Angela Osser, because she got married, and she got to be the receiving archivist for this set of papers from this woman, Margaret Fishback, who was the highest paid advertising copywriter in America in the 20s and 30s. And so I'm interested in trying to be a detective, which I think Flannery can be, and trying to be um, like an intellectual detective and, and look at forgotten things and forgotten histories. So Fishback was fascinating to me because we sort of live in this era where we associate advertising with madmen and this hyper-masculinist, just very aggressive, male-dominated culture, which of course is something it became. But prior to that, there were so many advertising women who were stunningly successful, and it was one of the most uh, professionally rewarding and lucrative avenues open to women in those time periods. And so I was totally smitten with Margaret Fishback. She was also a poet in kind of this um, Dorothy Parker mode. And so Angela was like, you've got to know about Fishback. And I did. And so I worked in her archive in 2007 and loved her, but didn't know what I was going to do with it. Meanwhile, my walking hobby was becoming more thoughtful, like it was becoming less of something I just did because I loved it and sort of intuitive and instinctive and more you know, I was putting these terms to it and becoming a little more systematized in that. So long story short, I think creativity is often a juxtaposition, right? You take this thing and this thing and you put them together and you're like, whoa, connection. And so it took me a few years, but I was able to take the fishback, you know, poet, ad woman material and my flannery and say, well, what if instead of trying to do like a biography or a critical study or reissue her poems, I took her and sort of adapted her into a novel and made her a flaneuse. And so it was definitely, I don't want to make it sound like this novel is going to be boring because it's like theoretical or it's got an agenda. It's just, it's a good read. But I was very cognizant at that point of being like, that's it. The key is she's a flaneuse. And so the novel has the split structure where she, you know, is taking in the present tense of the book a walk all over Manhattan. She walks almost 10 miles on New Year's Eve, 1984, where it's about to turn into 1985, and it's in the shadow of um, the Bernhard Getz subway killings. And, you know, New York is a very scary place, but she's someone who is committed to walking, and this has been her lifeline for various reasons. So you get that in the present of the story, and then you get her sort of like looking back over her spectacular rise and, you know, what goes up must come down in her eventual fall. And now a walk with Kathleen through Rogers Park, the northernmost neighborhood of Chicago. All right, so here we go. Um, so our like predetermined kind of destination that we're sort of bouncing off of on today's drift is heading up to Howard Street, sort of the upper reaches of Chicago. And part of why I thought of this Again, giving credit where it's due is um, my sister, Beth, who I mentioned. I'm toward fast walking, um, but not too fast, because if you go too fast, then you're not as good of a botanist of the sidewalk. That's awesome. So we'll head, I thought, we'll just go up to Devon and then really start where sort of it becomes Sheridan and then take Sheridan all the way. That sounds great. And sometimes we'll do that too, like 
set up a restriction. Again, I think part of why drifting can be like so linked to creative pursuits is that it does have those elements of structure, but also a lot of freedom. So you have these kind of walls or things that you're pushing against or bound by in a sense, but they still leave tons of room for discovery within that framework. So in addition to Howard being sort of the vague destination, I'm kind of into the idea of being like, we will do Sheridan the whole way. I don't know why, (laughs) but I have no good reason. Um, I think I have a particular affinity for diagonal streets. Mm -hmm. I love them. I think, you know, a lot of cities have them, but Chicago has them in a very distinctive way, and they create those sort of nightmarish six-way intersections, which I hate when I'm in a car and hate when I'm on my bike, (laughs) but really don't mind that much when I'm on foot. Of course, a walk exists, like most things, in space-time, but a good drift can feel like time travel in the sense that you feel like you're starting over and over and like on the best walks which often happens with the changes of diagonal streets I feel like I've gotten to live like three or four days in one just because things change so much from one zone to the next so yeah the diagonal streets are good Milwaukee Lincoln and it's fun when they end like Clybourne always ends too soon for me I was just walking on it yesterday and it was great and I was sad when it ended and I said out loud to Eric I was like oh I wish I wish that Clyburn was longer and then I caught myself immediately and was like but if it were longer it wouldn't be Clyburn so I take back my wish (laughs) because probably what I love about it wouldn't exist if it were you know structured any differently so let's go this way And then also I like these streets like that are clear borders between neighborhoods, like we're on Devon right now and Devon and Glenwood. And I really like um, that this is sort of per, I think it's a rare instance where it's like agreed upon by not just realtors, but residents that, you know, south is Edgewater and north is Rogers Park. It's like a definite border, you know? Yeah. So that's exciting. And I think that's part of why I'm attracted to Howard for this walk is that, you know, Chicago does kind of, like, bleed out a little bit past Howard, but it is itself this, like, dividing line between Chicago and Evanston, so. And then a book that I'm reading now, I'm just going to talk a lot, (laughs) a book that I'm reading now. You know, it's not, like, a specific neighborhood, but I think when you're a Flanor, you become super aware of places opening and places closing and having that sense of relief like every time you walk by a place you love and it hasn't suddenly closed you just want to celebrate because you're so aware of how ephemeral everything really is have you seen a lot of places close that you missed when you're a stroller people see you And you're not, like, changing their life with this intense interaction, but you're, like, part of the scene. And I feel that way about so many places like the Lincoln Restaurant, where even though I wasn't eating there, like, every week, it meant a lot to me to know that it was there. But, like, on the flip side of that, you know, as much as I... I feel each loss really profoundly, um... 
like when I see a new thing, I get really excited. So I think it's a way, you know, the highs are high and the lows are low when you're a flaneur. <laughs> So we are at the Howard stop and sort of, um, you know, Flannery is drifting, but like, I feel as though the east side of the Howard stop is so independent and charming. And this we're passing Gateway Center, which is immense, totally geared towards cars, fairly pedestrian hostile. Um, so it's just interesting to see how two sides of this one same relatively small area are completely opposite. And so I think this is this could be the this could be the end of our walk if you feel like that. Yeah, no, this is great. <laughs> awesome. Stand in the shade. This episode of Make No Bones was produced by Emily Barton Altman, and it was edited by Emily and Toby Altman. Music is by Toby Altman. To learn more about the podcast, you can visit us on our website at makenobonespodcast.org, or find us on Facebook and Twitter. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher, and if you like what we do, consider leaving us a review. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for an interview with Sarah Wainscott.